This podcast is a proud member of the CypherCast Network. Discover more at CypherCast.net. And follow us on Twitter at CypherCastNet. Welcome to Incantations, an Invisible Sun podcast. I am Scott Robinson. And I'm Dave Hanlon. And we will be your guides along the path of suns. Today we sing two spells. With the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss the silver sun. And then with Reflect a Different Truth, we discuss how to give orcs a surreal tone in an Invisible Sun game. Join us on the path of suns, and we may uncover a secret or two. In the careful gaze of the Grigori, we discuss an aspect of the Invisible Sun RPG in detail. This week, we will be discussing the Silver Sun. We're going to talk a little bit about the setting of Invisible Sun this time. And we're going to kick it off with talking about the first sun on the path of the Path of Suns. And that is the Silver Sun, who has one as its number. So, Scott... What do you know about uh, all of the suns in Invisible Sun? How many are there? You ask hard questions. Yeah, I know. It's real tough. <laughs> no, seriously. I didn't, I didn't do my homework. What is there? Uh, seven suns and then an Invisible Eighth? Uh, close. Uh, eight suns and then the Invisible Ninth sun. Uh, so they, they had a, a little fun with the updates. Um, so there were eight suns, actually nine. Uh, and we're going to be talking about the first one. Uh, also, I want to just let you know, we're only going to be talking about the light side of the silver sun. So our plan is to, you know, walk through the suns in order uh, and do the light side of each of them. And then we'll probably walk back on the path uh, and do the dark side and talk about, you know, each sun on that side of it. So it follows the the same path that they took for the Kickstarter. So before we get into uh, what the silver sun is, I just want to touch very briefly on what the suns are and how they play a role in the actuality. So, the actuality, what do you know about it? Uh, That's the really real world, as opposed to our very limited view of a particular uh, world around us. Yes. Um, And I think a little bit broader, uh, the actuality is everything. So, each of the suns as they describe it, is a plane of existence. So each sun is a different vibrational frequency of the actuality. So the silver sun is shining down on its lands, but then in a, in a plane that is, you know, it's the same sort of existence, it's the actuality. In a different plane, you have uh, the green sun or the blue sun or what we see, which is the gray sun. So this is something I've been trying to wrap my head around are you traveling to different physical locations? Do Does reality overlay itself when you travel from, say, the silver sun to the green sun? That's still not very clear. Also, all of the suns are part of your soul. The uh, The path of the suns is also a map of the human the human heart is something that they mention. Yeah, and one can imagine two different versions of this geography of the suns. One thing that uh, like the, with the strange, you move from recursion to recursion, but you, you're actually traveling two different recursions. They don't overlap with each right. other. Right. Uh, they're just connected to each other. Uh, a, a different model would be something like uh, in some versions of Dungeons and Dragons, where you have the say the Feywild 
uh, overlapping, or maybe uh, the, the plane of shadows might be a better example. The plane of shadows overlapping with our world, so that you see a castle in the reg- the base D and D world. In the plane of shadows, it's just a darker, creepier version of that same world. So there's a ge- geographic correspondence mm-hmm. between the two. Uh, it's not clear kind of how much or in which direction they're going with these correspondences between suns. That does remind me that they were pretty keen on Stranger Things and the concept of the Upside Down. So I think we might be looking at a situation where there is more of an overlay of one reality on the other. Maybe there will be some of that in play. We'll find out. I'll have to believe you on the Stranger Things. I, I'm, I've been a bad geek in the respect that I'm waiting to be able to watch all of Stranger Things with my wife. So we are catching up on some other things before we can get to Stranger Things. But Yeah, it's pretty good. I, I had to get through it before I went to Gen Con. So it was, it was kind of my homework. So anyhow, uh, we're going to be starting off with the Silver Sun, which is the first sun on the Path of Suns. Uh, and appropriately, this is the sun of beginning and genesis and the the lore that we have to work with suggests that people believe different things about the silver sun so it's not set in stone maybe it will never be set in stone uh something that money cook games likes to do is leave a lot of this up to interpretation so that we can fill it in for you know however we feel is appropriate but we've got two belief systems that they have laid out so far um some people say that the Silver Sun is the origin of all things uh, and that it basically created the the whole path. And then the other one is that people say that it's just the first step on a, on a path of many steps. So that it's just part of a greater whole rather than the genesis of everything. But it, it may indicate what sort of magic is most powerful in one sun versus another. So in the Silver Sun, since it emphasizes beginnings and origins... Uh, even if it is not itself the origin. Uh, that may be why makers and crafters are particularly keen to live there, because if they are creators, the creative energy of the Silver Sun may be particularly strong. Yes, that that is definitely noted, that makers and crafters really like it. And the other thing that would be helpful if you are a maker, uh, which is one of the orders that you could be part of, one of the other helpful things on under the Silver Sun would be its warden, which is Therim. One thing we didn't mention is that each sun has its own warden. And what their role is, uh, we have a few details. It sounds like uh, they're gatekeepers. Um, but Therim uh, is somebody that you could also call upon to aid in creation. So it seems like the wardens may also play a part in like helping magic under under the sun that they they reside within so in addition to being the genesis genesis and creation uh, what it that's what it represents in addition to that you also have this warden who you could you know talk to and work with in order to you know be a really good maker there was another thing that i found rather interesting when i was reading through the the background on the silver sun it's a real it's a little throw off line it said that creatures of the legacy are common here and when I was rereading this, I did not remember anything about the legacy showing up anywhere else. Do, does the legacy f- sound familiar? I don't remember it from anywhere else. Um, I'm reminded of a comment uh, maybe a couple of years ago at the uh, Money Cook Games uh, seminar at Gen Con, where a, 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 I 
think it was Shauna was saying that she was editing work that Mondi had written and he would just write, he would be inspired to just write something. And, and if he's going to write it, he might as well make it a proper noun and then come back later to define what that was. They may have a grand plan right now for the, uh, for the legacy and the creatures of the legacy. Uh, but it might also be a relatively underdeveloped concept at the time it was originally written that they want to go back and flesh out later. I think it's kind of a funny way to develop, an interesting way to develop. Well, it does definitely make uh, very evocative sentences. Uh, I'll be curious to see if there's anything else about the legacy that shows up later. I'd be shocked if there wasn't something. They, they're much more careful with their language in Kickstarter yes. updates, given their brevity, than they are with entire setting books where they're more likely to throw things around and mention something about mm -hmm. a city and never go back to that. But in, in the Kickstarter updates, they tend to only talk about things that will be important later. But then they never brought it back up. <laughs> uh, well, not in the we'll Kickstarter, see. at least. Um, all right. So there, there are some other things that we know about the Silver Sun and the lands underneath it. They evoked the Silver Sun with images of snow, white, clear rivers, ivory towers, lore masters, libraries full of books and all sorts of interesting things. So there are cities here, cities that run wheels and kilns. And here was an interesting little tidbit. They also have printing presses that are running nonstop. So I'm very curious about the technological level that's going to be found in the lands of Invisible Sun. I mean, we've seen some images. Uh, Saturine has some Im images associated with it that make it look like it's Something dropped out of, say, the 1920s or 1930s, I think. They have nightclubs like Zeros, and I thought there was another nightclub, but I can't think of it. But that was the sort of sense that I was getting from the information that we had about Saturine. But here, under the Silver Sun, we're talking about printing presses, which that is a very old technology. Yeah, and I didn't quite get the connection between some of the archetypal associations of the Silver Sun with creation. And the cities as being industrious, uh, though I could see the potential for such connections. And this is, I think, an interesting example of how they're combining archetypes and mixing and matching archetypes to create new combinations and not going with just, uh, well, we'll just map these to seven tarot mm -hmm. cards and move along. So we have cities under the silver sun. And crafters really like it here. Artists are also something that it seems you can find here. Um, you've got studios, open courtyards, and rooftops where artists like to work. So the other thing that is really interesting about the Silver Sun that we know about is there is a very, very tall mountain called Luak Tur, the Silver Mountain. It's an infinitely high mountain, and it's infinitely cold. Uh, and they also use the slopes of the mountain for powerful rituals. I guess I don't have too much else to say about the mountain. Well, we don't have a lot of details on this. Uh, it is interesting that the description of the Silver Sun is almost entirely a description of a setting where they have said that the Silver Sun, that each of the suns is represented both by a geography and a part of the, uh, the heart. They haven't talked much about the heart part and a lot more about the geography. Yeah, and I think that holds true for the other, you know, updates about the different suns. It was mostly about geography and setting. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how much one can rely upon 
moving from sun to sun as part of sto storytelling and whether these are all relatively accessible locations to set our adventures and our stories um, or if some of these are going to be um, you know pr predominant settings for most stories with only occasional visits to other more exotic suns right and i guess that depends on how you actually travel from one plane to the next. Are you going to go through the gateways that magic travels through, which the wardens are guarding over? If that's something that you're going to be doing, then I imagine traveling from one sun to the next is going to be a little bit of a task because you might have to interact with the warden and make a plea to continue on the path and, and get through. Then again, the, the suns are also it's a map of your soul. It's part of who you are. So is there a physical journey that you have to take or is it just a meta metaphysical one? And I think this is interesting when compared to other settings where the different regions or, or nations would be described with all of their different cities and locations. Here, there's in some sense a lot more to go on when you're developing new material because if you're gonna set a, an adventure or a session under the silver sun, Yes, you have Luak Tour and other specific locations mentioned, and yes, you have the equivalent of the kind of cultural technology level and other elements that help you flesh out a setting as you would a nation. But in that the silver sun is part of your heart, kind of the human soul, there's more to the tone and flavor of the silver sun than you would get from just generic nation number two. Uh, in, a, in any other setting. So maybe it, it is just the sort of constraint and detail that makes it easier to develop settings or, or adventures where the setting matters and the tone comes through within the adventure or within the encounter uh, because you, you know what's specific to that sun. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, is there anything else we want to talk about for the Silver Sun? I think that's about all we can talk about given the scarcity of information we have right now, but we will be back to discuss other suns in uh, future segments. Sounds good. In Reflect a Different Truth, we discuss how to bring a surreal tone to your Invisible Sun games. Today, we discuss one of the most basic fantasy tropes, the orc as a stock antagonist, and how you can make an orc a surreal component of an Invisible Sun story. The basic process for adapting an RPG element to a surreal tone is to identify the core meaning of that element and then exaggerate the description of the element to reflect the meaning. This is very vague, I understand, so I thought it would be best to illustrate it through a practical example. And orcs are a very accessible example for us from various other fantasy games. So we can talk about what it would distinguish a surreal orc from an orc that you'd get from central casting from any more generic fantasy setting. So are we going to be using uh, GURPS as our generic setting for orcs? <laughs> well, you could. orcs are surprisingly consistent uh, across settings. Even if goblins can be different in, say, Galarian from Pathfinder than they are in some other fantasy settings, and there's tweaks here and there, orcs are, are very often just orcs. They are not uh, differentiated very much from other humanoid antagonists. So it's an interesting hard case for how to make something surreal when there isn't a whole lot to go on. So the first thing we need to do is talk about what makes an orc an orc and what does that mean for fantasy settings? 
Right. And so I, I like to ask, what do orcs represent in our setting? Like, why bother even having orcs? What sort of stories are orcs supposed to help us tell? And how do they help contribute to that story? So I thought of a few meanings for what orcs can, can what role they can play within our setting. They can stand for pure aggression. That is a humanoid race that is so given over to aggression that they physically embody in aggression itself. Uh, and that's one way that they're, they're used in some stories. They're the, they are the invading or, uh, army. They are the horde that is going to overtake civilization, represented by all of those protagonists who can balance their aggression. And, and so they, you know, orcs are the, are, are the scary, aggressive other in, some, in a lot of these settings. So why orcs instead of something like goblins or hobgoblins? It could be. Now, I, maybe I've tried too hard over the decades to distinguish these. Goblins have a more fey connotation. And often, like in, in Paizo's Galarian, uh, goblins are a little more playful, even if they're still vicious. They're often physically flimsy or weaker mm-hmm. than, by comparison, orcs. So they aren't raw physicality, even if they are, they are sort of this id-driven destructive force. Hobgoblins, uh, at least within the D&D characterization, are more militaristic, and in that, often, uh, they, they play upon the organizational tones of militarism. They're more likely to have, you know, kind of nice armor and march in formation. Think even in fourth edition, hobgoblins had specific powers that played upon this notion of militaristic order, uh, tempering their aggression. Okay, so our orcs are just aggression. Right. Just monsters. That's That's one of the interpretations, is that they are just pure aggression. They represent that within our stories, or can represent that within our stories. No, that's cool. They could also, we could take a very different tack, and especially with higher fantasy settings, uh, orcs really aren't much of a threat, and so they become characterized instead as being disposable infantry. These are the creatures that you can, that villains can throw at the heroes by the handful, just wave after wave of disposable orcs, and they are they don't have names, they don't have histories, no one really pays attention to them. They're just disposable infantry in some settings. And that's a different tone than the pure aggression tone. They're not incompatible, but they're different. Yeah, they're definitely not incompatible. I remember having a few sessions of 5th edition where I would throw in, oh, okay, here's 12 orcs. And then once your PCs are high enough level, 12 orcs will go down in a round. So, oh... Guess what? 20 more orcs showed up just to stand in front of the wizard so you can't just destroy him in one turn. Right. These are the creatures you could just keep throwing at players until they accomplish a goal. And whether it's 5, 10, 20, 30, you just keep throwing them. Because they're in this type of story, they become disposable infantry. You aren't getting into the history of any of them. You aren't interacting with them. There's no role-playing exercise. Uh, and usually you aren't rolling morale even. These are just wave after wave of hit points with pointy sticks crashing at the players. Yeah, I, I could say I feel a little bad about throwing all those orcs at my players, but I don't know. They had fun. <laughs> well, there's, uh, I will suggest some ways to make that role more obvious in a way that is really making it more surreal. A a third possibility is maybe a combination of the first two, and that orcs represent violent weapons. 
That is, they have the lack of agency of the disposable infantry, that orcs don't really do things for themselves. They are usually sent somewhere by an evil wizard or a great warlord or something along those lines. So they're weapons rather than um, uh, you know, active agents in the narrative, but they're highly violent ones. So sort of like the combination of aggression and disposability. <laughs> I'm reminded of a, of a great quote from uh, Venture Brothers, where so I believe it was Dr. Girlfriend is talking to one of the minions of the monarch and said that they possess the greatest quality of any minion, the combination of invulnerability and utter disposability. <laughs> uh, and you could think of orcs in a similar way. As violent weapons, they, are, uh, they, don't, they lack agency. They are just weapons to be deployed by some greater uh, mastermind, but they're violent and aggressive and, and potentially dangerous weapons. And that can be a different type of, of tone that you play up uh, and then exaggerate if you want to make orcs surreal to play off some meaning within your particular setting. Okay. So once we have identified what role we want the orcs to play and what meaning they have within our stories, we want to exaggerate the physical representation of these orcs to reflect that role within our stories. We could do this depending upon which of these three meanings we want to pursue most completely. Well, as a former DM, uh, currently a GM, I feel very comfortable with disposable infantry orcs. But the idea of violent weapons uh another way to describe that would be organic intelligent weapons crafted by say a wizard like that's also very intriguing right the the, the line between say a golem with pointy spikes and an orc becomes pretty blurry at that point mm -hmm. <laughs> and and if you read in, in a lot of fantasy literature in some ways they, they those are pretty interchangeable that the, the orc might as well be um, any other sort of creature that has that carries an axe and goes wherever the wizard points and swings that axe at the at the protagonists. So are we going to focus on one of these, or are we just going to start talking about them? Well, I think we can talk about all three, but doing so only quickly to illustrate how you can go in different directions okay. uh, and exaggerate in different directions depending upon which of these meanings and roles you want to emphasize. So with pure aggression you might just add kind of a spikiness to the orcs, give them actual physical spikes emanating from their skin to physically represent their aggressiveness. This is, you know, the, the, uh, they're, they're unapproachable. You can't touch them because they, are, they have these spikes. And you want kind of a, even to the point of an unrealistic anatomy to support this, these types of spikes. And this, this can, it, you can do this over a whole range. At, at the lower range, which I, I would say is, is, is only kind of close to surreal, uh, it's only kind of, it's in view of the surreal, would be the uh, orcs and the Urukai from the Lord of the Ring movies from Jackson, where the Urukai are, they often wear spiky sorts of armor. It's rough, it is unrefined armor, mm -hmm. but they're still recognizably humanoid, and otherwise they just look like poorly equipped but dangerous humanoids. To exaggerate more this sort of pure aggression, you might look at something like the World of Warcraft representation of orcs, where it's it's a cartoon world rather than a realistically rendered world. So exaggeration's kind of inherent in that cartoon representation. And there they've got cartoonishly large teeth mm -hmm. and fangs and uh, large shoulders and exaggerated body proportions that play into this notion of them being aggressive physical entities. 
but you, you could take it even further and make uh, and represent your orcs as being impossibly covered in spikes. The spike that's unrealistically is unrealistic in terms of anatomy, but it, again, it just shows that they are so aggressive that their essence of aggression has overtaken any sort of sense of order and reason to their body form. Yeah, and I think that's that's where you trip from it being exaggerated into something that is a bit more surreal. Right, where the the elements that make it unreal refer back and draw into question the representation and meaning of that particular entity. So it kind of forces the question, like, this can't possibly exist. Yeah. Nothing with spikes like that could possibly exist. Well, what does it mean? Oh, these spikes are unreal because they, they um, because meaning is so much more important than realism in a surreal setting. Those spikes just exaggerate the meaning, and that, that meaning has more gravity. Mm -hmm. uh, and that, I think, is a, a good indicator it's surreal rather than just cartoonish. Cool. Or even weird. But you can go in an entirely different direction if you want to emphasize the disposable infantry meaning of orcs. There, you don't necessarily, you don't have to get spikes necessarily. These could be flimsy, even like robotic frames that just carry around like a spear uh, or a, a other sort of simple weapon. If they really are disposable infantry, then it could just be the equivalent of a, a, a Roomba with a spike on top. I mean, these are just, and they sent after players and wave after wave to emphasize their disposability. That is an interesting idea, because then if you're talking about just having frames, and what I was picturing was almost the robots from Star Wars, the, you know, one, two, and three, I guess I was just starting to picture those things. But if you punch out their bodies so that they're just wireframe cutouts with weapons, I guess that's what I was looking at. Yeah, or I was thinking in, in World of Warcraft, they have training dummies. Yeah. Which are kind of like scarecrows with a weapon on them. And all they exist to do is for you to test out your, um, your, your effectiveness and the rotation of your spells and things like that. You could have the equivalent in a, an Invisible Sun game where they're basically a scarecrow with an axe. And the scarecrow aspect where their armor is falling off of them, if they have any at all, their frame is, inco is incomplete because they are just, they're just a frame of sticks or robotic parts uh, to hold up an axe. It, it serves to emphasize the disposable theme that the you know, wizards or whatever the, the antagonist is who's controlling this disposable army doesn't care about whether they live on, has no interest in that at all. They are just disposable weapons for him to throw at a situation. So if you're, if you're introducing these orcs to your characters and you're saying, all right, these scarecrow-looking guys enter the room and they all have you know, these flimsy weapons, is that too far away from what an orc traditionally is for them to say, oh, these are some weird orcs? Or do you want them to draw that parallel when these creatures show up? Do you want them to be recognizable as orcs, but twisted in a way that your players will be, I, I guess, confused by how they're presented? Well, it depends on the story you want to tell. If it's important for you to draw into question orcs, like specifically orcs mm -hmm. and orcs within fantasy literature, then you may want them to be recognizable. And that may be as simple as saying that in addition to this flimsy fl uh, frame, there's a little mask pulled down over each of the robotic frames, which is a roughly drawn kind of green mask that represents the orc with a fearsome but 
you know, crudely drawn set of fangs and teeth. So you can take uh, the inspiration of the orcs and create this disposable infantry, make it surreal. And your inspiration is orcs, but your end product doesn't necessarily need to be an orc that is surreal. It's just the right. concept of what the orc, orc represents in a game turned into a, an interesting idea that gets your point across. Or it's just an interesting creature for your players to run into. Right, and that's the, the essence of trying to play with these surreal elements, is that meaning matters more than form. Mm-hmm. And so you need to concentrate on meaning and let the meaning tell the story and exaggerate the form in order to tell and facilitate the meaning. Uh, whether that is something that is still recognizably orc or whether orc is just a way for, as a storyteller for you to get started in your development and say, well, we have orcs here. Well, what do I really mean and what do I want with orcs? Oh, I really want something disposable. Let me emphasize yeah. disposability. Then you go with the flimsy part. If instead you say, oh, I, what I really want are violent weapons, you may go in a different way. So in that case, instead of if you don't want to emphasize flimsy, you want to emphasize the violent weapons balance between the two, maybe you turn the body parts of the orc into weapons. So instead of arms and hands, they're just axe heads. That sure. would make it very inconvenient biologically. <laughs> it's not realistic, but it... it helps you tell that story and now you are presenting to the players a a a, a, a challenge a, a creature that could not exist physically and it makes them question well, what does this mean what does this represent if it's all it is its only possible purpose is destruction all it can do is break things mm -hmm. if that's the story you want to tell you can take the orc in that direction okay that that makes a lot more sense. I guess I was coming at it from a different perspective. But now that I'm thinking about it from, you know, I've put my GM hat on. You can't see it because uh, this is a podcast. <laughs> but I put my GM hat on and I'm thinking about this and saying, oh, I have I have a scene that's coming up in my next session for my game. Well, I've got a I've got a character who they're going to run. My characters are going to who my players are going to run into pretty soon. And I want this character to be memorable for this certain characteristic. If this person uh, has minions, let's say orcs, let's say I was going to use orcs uh, as his minions, I could sort of accentuate his personality by making them these violent weapons. So instead of orcs, oh, it's these like strange creatures with axes for heads and like claws instead of hands just so that they get an idea about what this character is like even if he's not there like he's creating these monstrous creations that are just there to kill things right and if you wanted to go in a humorous direction you might use something like the the, like the tools from the sorcerer's apprentice and literally have an axe with legs running around sure but that's only if you want the humorous side of it if instead you want to have some sense of menace, then you would have, you know, a big physically imposing creature that mm -hmm. happens to have these, you know, the, that in fact is more dangerous by the fact that it has these axe heads for hands yep. and seems to have no other potential purpose than to chop up your adventurers. Well, and I'm doing Shadow of the Demon Lord, so there's there's nothing funny except for all the, the poop jokes. <laughs> Well, but you could still use a similar approach in Shadow of the Demon Lord 
uh, to developing, not necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily call it surreal, but something a, a, akin to surrealism as just a development and brainstorming process mm-hmm. where you say, uh, my next encounter, what themes do I want to reinforce? What ideas do I want to have present? Now let me physically embody those ideas in as exaggerated a form as I can imagine. Yeah. Yeah, I'll, I'll probably be thinking about that when I start doing my prep next week. <laughs> yeah, this isn't uh, specific to Invisible Sun, but I think it's particularly appropriate for a setting that is that describes itself as, as surreal uh, to really ramp up the exaggeration yeah. uh, and to not care much at all about the realism or the biological sustainability of a creature who <laughs> only has axe hands or <laughs> other sort or, or spi- unrealistic spikes running through its body. Yeah, that's a lot to think about. Well, this is uh, the first of these exercises, and in future segments, we may look at other uh, themes or other creatures and how to adapt them to give them a special sort of surreal flavor and bring them into the Invisible Sun world. This ends our walk. Maybe you discovered something today. Maybe you need to look closer. The music was titled Beyond from Wes Otis and Plate Mail Games. It is available from DriveThruRPG. Check the show notes for a link. Invisible Sun is the intellectual property of Monty Cook Games. You can find a link to their website in the show notes. You can email us at incantationspodcast at gmail.com or find our blog at incantationspodcast.blogspot.com. You can find me on Twitter at dr scott robinson and you can find me at tex underscore red on twitter <laughs>